you can open your Bibles if you have them to uh, 1 Samuel, the end of chapter 17, and then uh, the rest will be in chapter 18 is where we'll be uh, this evening. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, a little bit, and then 18. We'll also cover some of 19 um, in, the, in the process as we look at this story of what happens to David as he takes over uh, or as he, he has been anointed king and Saul is still alive and still on the throne and kind of going crazy. Um, has there ever been a point in your life, I'm sure there has, if you've lived for any period of time, where you feel as though the Lord has really called you to a particular place, has taken you to a particular place, or has put you in a particular place, and you go there in obedience to the Lord, and you are really uh, gung-ho about what the future might hold for you, and then you get there, and things don't necessarily go according to plan. Uh, they don't exactly turn out the way that you thought that they might. And along the way, what gets really tempting for you to do is to question, one, is this really where God has placed me? Is this really what God has called me to do? Uh, it's amazing how trials, as they come along, cause you to question the plan of the Lord the whole time, right? Um, then there's the uh, other questions, like not only is this actually what God has called me to do, or the other is, is God actually against me in this process? Uh, that's kind of worst case scenario. As the suffering goes on, your, your doubt of God's plan to begin with has now turned to uh, doubt that you are actually one of God's children. Oh no, uh, worst case scenario, maybe God has it out for me and uh, I'm, I'm not his and this whole thing is a, is a sham. Um, we find David in a situation uh, in our story where David is no doubt frustrated. But in David's story, what we're going to see is what's inevitably true in all of our lives, that there are unbelievable provisions that the Lord has given to him along the way. Provisions that David probably doesn't even realize at the time are incredible provisions. And that comes about in a very unlikely friendship that no one sees coming in the text. So look with me at our, our text. The first thing we see, um, remember David has just killed Goliath. And David, we know, has been the anointed one of God. Samuel has anointed him. And David then is called into the court of the king to play the harp and the lyre for him and put him at ease and put him to sleep in one of his little tirades that he goes on in his sort of bipolar disorder from this demon that's been sent by the Lord to torment him, <laughs> which is crazy in and of itself. But Saul is in, this, in these sort of crazy states and David comes in to play the, the harp and the lyre after he's been anointed to be king to take over um, for Saul. And Saul is unaware of this, remember. Saul does not know that this is the plan of the Lord. He knows that the kingdom has been torn away from him. He knows it's been given to someone else, but he has no idea that David is going to be the beneficiary of that kingdom. 
So David's been brought in to play for him. And then, lo and behold, David is watching the sheep, and he's told by his dad to go up and check on his brothers. And so he goes up and checks on his brothers and carries them a wheel of cheese. And along, and when he's there, he hears the taunts of a giant across the, the valley, and he's, he's just anointed by the Lord and has the Lord's Spirit upon him, and he just cannot stand for this. And so he says, no, this will not be the case. This guy will not, this uncircumcised Philistine will not be allowed to just torment the people, the armies of the Lord. And so I'm going to do something about it. So David musters up the, the uh, wherewithal to get out in the battlefield and he slays Goliath right then and there and chops off his head and brings his head back to Saul uh, in his hand, carrying him by the hair of the head. And so Saul is thinking to himself, well, this guy's pretty brave, right? So he walks in to, uh, to uh, Saul's tent, and this is kind of where the, the, the story picks up. We see this, this act of heroism of David killing Goliath actually so impressed Saul that he said to David, you're uh, done going home. I'm taking you away from your dad. I'm taking you away from everybody in Bethlehem. You're coming to stay with me because you're awesome and you're going to stay right here in my court. Basically is, what, is what's happened here. Uh, Saul has just sort of co-opted David to be a part of, of, of his family, more or less. And now Saul had inquired as to, to who this kid was. As David was walking out on the battlefield, the author of 1 Samuel tells us that he turns to his general and he says, who is this kid's dad? And the general goes, I, I don't know who this kid's dad is. And he's like, well, find out for me. And so David, before he can really find out, David walks back into his tent with, Saul, with, uh, with Goliath's head in his hand and gives it to Saul. And Saul just asks him, who's your dad? And he says, well, my dad's Jesse the Bethlehemite. And the reason that he's asking him this is because there was a promise that was given to the person who would go and fight Goliath. Remember, David asked this, so what's going to be the prize for the person that takes this guy down? And they said, well, the, ki the king has really promised to give lots of things. But th there was an exemption of taxation that was going to be given for whoever would take down this Philistine. It was an exemption of taxation, um, which is probably the reason why Saul asked who this guy's dad is. Because... Obviously, we got to go and bless Jesse by removing any tax obligation that he might have. And so um, there's a removal of, of taxation. There is give, the giving of Saul's daughter. That was another promise. Saul's daughter would be given to whomever uh, takes down this Philistine. And then the, the other uh, part of this is, is actually some just a ton of money that's given to the person. So it turns out that this deal that David went on the battlefield was actually a pretty sweet gig. All right? Because if you could take down this Philistine, then, well, your family was not obligated to taxes anymore. You got married, so that was a big deal. There's that. And then you got a whole bunch of gold, which is not a bad thing either. And worst case scenario, you're dead. All right? So, I mean, so at that point, who cares, right? So, um, so David moves out there, but... <laughs> Because this was, was so unbelievable, what took place, um, and because it, it really only took one stone, David brings effectively a gun to the fight, hits Goliath in the head, takes him down. He's made a hero in the land, and Saul is so impressed with it that he just makes David the commander of the army. It's not bad either. Actually, you end up getting a job out of it, right? Right? 
So he, so David is uh, Saul. So impressed, he makes him the commander of the army. But what's amazing in the whole story? All of that is good enough. Jesse's blessed. David uh, is married to Saul's daughter. That's going to end up being a really big deal in just a minute. Uh, he gets a ton of money, which is great. He gets a job. He's made commander. Above all of those, his friendship with Jonathan. Above everything else, friendship with Jonathan ends up being more valuable than any of those things. I want you to think about this for just a second. I want you to think about David's whole taking the throne, killing Goliath, all of those things, being anointed as king from Jonathan's perspective. Who is Jonathan? The king's son. What order is he? He's the oldest. That makes him next in line to the throne. Now, we know as the reader something that really only David knows in this story. At least only David knows for sure that he's been anointed king and he's going to take over. We can flip to the end and we can see that he does. Jonathan, it doesn't seem, at least knows that for sure. So Jonathan may be under the assumption, maybe. Let's say he didn't believe Samuel when Samuel said, the kingdom's being torn away from you. Jonathan may be under the assumption that he's going to be next in line to the throne. There's not one complaint in the scriptures from Jonathan about David taking over the kingdom. There's not one that I remember, a woe is me moment, where Jonathan has this soliloquy out on the side where he's complaining to God about David being over Israel and not him. No, in fact, we know that Jonathan is the eldest son and if the ordinary dynastic succession takes place, Jonathan is going to be sitting on the throne. He's going to be the one that's the king. But what actually happens in the story? Jonathan understands that the Lord's favor has fallen on David. And he actually is going to betray his own father to benefit David. Think about that for just a second. He's going to hide what he's doing for David from his own father in order to benefit whom the Lord has anointed over the nation of Israel. What kind of faith does that take in the Lord's sovereignty to just trust that even though it's been taken away from you because of your father's own foolishness and it's been given to another, that God is still good? Imagine that for just a second. I don't think we spend enough time on Jonathan here. 
We saw a few chapters ago where Jonathan was so convinced that he could go take down these Philistines and that the Lord was going to slay them that he just walked up there with his armor bearer while Saul and the men cowered in the corner. He just walked up on the hill and killed them all. I mean, he told his armor bearer, well, why? the Lord's going to do the work. Why don't we just go up there and kill these uncircumcised Philistines? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he does. So we know that Jonathan has this inclination toward the Lord that Saul doesn't have. Might there be a little bit in there that you might think, well, God, my dad doesn't listen to you, but I will. Give the kingdom to me. I will. But that wasn't the Lord's plan. But what I'm amazed about with Jonathan is he doesn't really bat an eye at the whole thing. He just trusts that it's, that it's okay. That everything is going to be fine. So Jonathan defers to Yahweh's selection of David. And what we're going to see in this passage is that he actually does it in a number of ways. One thing we know for sure is that Saul is becoming is going to become aware of not only where Jonathan's loyalties lie, but something going on with David. David features into the plan of the Lord somehow. And we're not exactly sure how, how Saul comes to this awareness, but we do know that he becomes a little bit aware that David is 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 a is a prominent is playing a prominent role in this. Look at 1 Samuel 20 verse 31, which is about four passages down here on your on your scripture list. This is Saul talking to Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. So Saul is going to even use Jonathan's position as next in line against him. If you really care about sitting on this throne, then you'll bring me David and I'll kill him. So we know that he becomes aware, but but Jonathan defers to Yahweh's selection of David. And we see this uh, in three different ways in the text. And we're going to read these. Um, The first is that Jonathan makes a binding covenant with David. Uh, somebody read 1 Samuel 18, 3. All right. I want you to notice David is not required to make the covenant back, to respond to the covenant. It's a one-way binding agreement Jonathan makes with David. David is not obligated to Jonathan in any way. Jonathan is the one that makes the covenant with David. So that's one way we see. Second, Jonathan clothes David in his own royal attire. Someone read 1 Samuel 18, 4. Then 23, 17 to 18, and he said to him, Do not fear, 
for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. So Jonathan is there for David through thick and thin. And as David takes the, the, uh, comes before him, as David is made commander over the armies, Jonathan makes a covenant with him, takes off his royal armor, and puts it on David. That's a tremendous sign for the previous commander of the armies of Saul to acknowledge David as not only commander, but son. Worthy of the royal armor. Puts it on David. Then third, the covenant was made not only with David, but also with the Davidic dynasty. Somebody read 1 Samuel 20. Verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So just consider for a moment what God has done completely beyond the expectation of David. You're going to be king, anoints you puts you there in David's ha- in Saul's house. Saul's crazy. Saul's going to try to kill you. Saul makes you the commander of the armies at first and sort of favors you. Jonathan is attached to David. Now, Jonathan is older than David. By the time Saul takes the throne, Jonathan is the commander of the armies. David, at least by the biblical estimation, is born no earlier than 1041. Saul takes the throne in 1051. Jonathan is already commander of the armies, probably 30 years older than than David at this point. Um, A lot of people look at them as brothers, but it's probably more like father-son relationship. David is much younger than Jonathan. Has to be in order for Jonathan to hold the position that he does when David is so young as he is. And so... Jonathan, probably about 30 years older than, than David, um, is, is sort of taking him under his wing and taken to protect him because he sees the Lord's favor on him. He sees that this is the Lord's will uh, that probably understands, maybe has some insight into what the Lord is actually doing here. I'm, I mean, it's not beyond the pale. Doesn't Jonathan see the Philistines and go to attack them earlier. He seems to have a kind of faith in the Lord that his own father does not have. And so it's not beyond reason that, that Jonathan might have some insight here into the fact that David is next in line. This is the guy. I know this is the guy that's going to take over the throne. And so without equivocation, without, without balking at all, uh, gives all of his allegiance to David at the expense of his own father, whom the Lord has rejected. Uh, it, it, sometimes in, in the biblical text, it's hard to ask these questions, but I think we have to ask them. Do I have that kind of allegiance to the Lord's will? Do I have that kind of dedication 
to the Lord's will, knowing that it's going to cause me pain. This story does not end well for Jonathan. He's going to die in battle and get pinned to a wall. His dead carcass to a wall. It doesn't, doesn't end well for him. But he's going to be loyal to David to the end because he's loyal to the king of David. I, I, and it, I think it just it has to raise the question in our minds. Am I that trusting of what the Lord is doing? Um, so, after all of this, David is appointed as commander of the armies, and so David goes into battle. Now, you've heard the expression, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> Perhaps this is what Saul had in mind when he put David as the... As the uh, uh, general or the commander of his armies? Most likely not. But it quickly turned that way. Uh, it seems that Saul, his promotion of David, it was, it was pretty good at first. Hey, this guy killed uh, the biggest giant uh, facing us right now. But what it proved is that his fragile psyche could not actually handle David being having so much tension drawn to him. David has just delivered the armies of the Lord from the fiercest enemy they could possibly ever think. Remember, the Philistines are trying to take control of the center of the country because if you can take control of the center, you have control over or you can easily control uh, the rest of it. All, all roads lead to that center point, right? So if you can take control of that area like the Philistines wanted, then you can probably have your reign over most of the rest of the country. Well, David then delivers them. So this is, uh, is going to become a, a big deal. Everybody's going to hear about this. And people start singing songs about David to the point where he's, they sing of his exploit in legendary terms. Saul has killed his thousands David, his ten thousands. Now, you got a guy over here in the corner who's king, temperamental to begin with, always needs a little bit of assurance and a little bit of, you know, rubbing his head and patting him on the shoulder and saying, You're doing a good job. Always needs a little bit of that affirmation. Then he gets a demon, all right? So he goes a little bit crazy. So that he needs uh, some music and some soothing stuff for him to just be calmed down. All right. Already a little paranoid. Now with a demon. Now the person who is getting a lot of attention is being championed as better than he is. Well, that presents a problem. All right. Needless to say, uh, Saul doesn't like this too much. So what does Saul do? Naturally, what anybody would do, he throws a spear at him. Twice, actually. Tries to kill him twice. That's what you do to all your enemies, right? You just chunk a spear at him. Uh, you'd think it would work. Uh, somebody read, uh, where am I at? 1 Samuel 18, 11, and then 19, 10. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, so 
Saul goes a little bit crazy, decides I'm going to kill David, and I'm going to pin David to the wall, and throws a spear at him for seemingly no really good reason. David obviously didn't give him any, uh, any reason to, to mistrust him or anything like that, except that he's getting a lot of attention. And so he chunks a spear at him. But what do we see except that the Lord delivered him from the spear? We'll never know how close that spear came to pinning David to the wall, but it missed. That's the point. And David was spared. Um, so then Saul released David from his palace service. Now you'd think, well, he's getting laid off. No, he's getting set up to be murdered is what he's getting set up to be. David actually mimics this later with Uriah the Hittite as he moves him to the front lines of battle. Saul has basically taken him away from any palace duties, anything that would take him away from the front lines of battle. Maybe, just maybe, David will be serving in battle and one of these stray spears from someone else will catch him just right and kill him. So Saul removes him from palace service. But what happens? Let's read 1 Samuel uh, 18, 13 to 16. Let me read that out loud. Imagine if you're Saul and you think every soldier is going to die in battle at some point if he stays on the field long enough. Here this little kid is who just killed a giant and brought you his head when all your army was fearful. Here is this guy who goes out onto the battlefield and it seems like no matter where he goes, everybody else dies. This guy has all the fortune in the world, and when he comes back, the only thing that you can possibly conclude, the Lord's with him. How afraid would you be if you had been told by the prophet in all the land that the Lord was taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to somebody else? And then you see this guy, and everywhere he goes, it seems like he kills everybody. Nobody's able to take him down. So Saul is a little bit afraid. So needless to say, he was removed from palace service, but the Lord was with him, it says in the text, and the Lord made him successful. Okay. David, let's talk about that debt I owe you. I owe you my daughter. Normally, if you're going to take my daughter, you would have to give me a bunch of money. Basically, buy my daughter from me, all right? Well, in this case, what I want, instead of gold, because remember, he's just given David a whole bunch of gold for killing uh, Goliath. So it wouldn't make sense, really, for him to give the gold back. What I want is the foreskin of 100 Philistines. That should be impossible. Now we know. If I do this... And he goes out and he has to slay a hundred Philistines. 
and he has to bring them back to me. Well, surely, surely, one of these hundred, or perhaps any one of the other Philistines that might be standing around, will have a chance and they'll take David out. And then David brings back 200, just for good measure. Now we get past the imagery of how gross this is, <laughs> that, that, he, that he does this, but uh, look at 1 Samuel 18, 25 to 29. Somebody read that out loud for us. And Saul said that... <clears throat> Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's comical. They really should just turn this whole thing verbatim into a movie. You wouldn't have to change a single thing, and it would be an amazing movie. But um, <clears throat> Saul sends him out, uh, is convinced that that's how he's going to die. That's not at all what happens. And in the text, I can't help but see, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems that David is oblivious to all this. Well, how can he be oblivious? Saul hurled a spear at him. <laughs> but you have to remember, David knows that Saul's got some, some problems. And David knows why he's been brought into the palace, why he's been brought into to do this, because Saul goes into these fits of rage and things like this. It's entirely possible that David interprets the spear throwing at him as just, you know, Saul is going, going crazy and I just need to stay out of his way. But it seems as though Saul, uh, David is going, oh yeah, okay, 100, 104 skin, that, that seems fair. And so goes and does it because he really wants Saul's... Saul's daughter and wants to be the king's son-in-law. So he brings back 200. It seems like David is just sort of this sort of young, blissful ignorance as he's going about doing this. And yet, at the same time, never falling out of step with the Lord's plan and going, well, he delivered the giant to me. He delivered all these people to me that I've gone into battle. And what's 100 Philistines? That's not, no big deal. <laughs> okay. Um, so <clears throat> anyway... David goes after him. Well, once Saul sees how successful David is continually in battle, this drives Saul even more mad. And so Saul becomes more overt in his intentions and really then lets it be known, uh, even to Jonathan, that David must die. Now, Jonathan seems to be aware at this moment uh, in the story that David is God's, uh, is God's elect and that he is trying and he's telling Saul this whole time. He's essentially functioning as David's intercessor before Saul. And look in 1 Samuel on the last page of your notes there, the last page of the scripture readings. 
uh, 1 Samuel 19, 4-5, he says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? He hasn't done anything to you. Why don't you just let it go? Now, Jonathan is being pretty brave here because his dad's a little bit crazy and has, is, it seems willing to do just about anything to get rid of David. Saul's, I mean, uh, Jonathan's putting himself in harm's way, stepping in between the wrath of Saul and the innocent David on the other side. And he's going to go even a little bit further. Um, Saul knows that David must die. And so what they do is he and, uh, and Jonathan are going to work out a little bit of a plan. And so he, this pitch that Jonathan makes to, to Saul in uh, 19.4-5 it works temporarily. There's a temporary reconciliation that happens, but before long, Saul is at uh, after David's life yet again, and this time he's going to send assassins to his <laughs> to his bed. He has literally tried everything to kill this kid, so he's going to send assassins to kill David while he sleeps. There's a problem. What is it? Who's David married to? Married to Saul's daughter. Well, turns out Saul, not only is he bad at killing David, he's also bad at keeping a secret. So Michael finds out about this, and she, we found out, loves David, and so she lets David know about it. She lets him down in a basket out a window, and then pulls the old stuffed pillows under a sheet trick to make it look like David's in the bed when the assassins come in and then they find out David's not there because Michael has let David know and so that he got out and escaped from harm's way. Now, this is just hilarious, by the way, because yet again, what do we see? That Saul has his plans to kill him, but God has plans to put David on the throne and his plan will not be thwarted. Period. No matter how hard Saul tries, look at all the provision God has already put into place. Who could have foreseen Jonathan being best friends with David? Who could have foreseen David winning the hand of Saul's daughter that she might love him and warn him ahead of time of things that she was privy to, of information she was privy to? James. Yeah. God. But clearly he's done this. No matter what obstacle Saul has put in the way to kill David, none of it has worked because the Lord is with him. This is God's plan and it can't be thwarted. And so all of the provision before David even knew about these things. I think it's probably about the time of Michael or right around Jonathan's warning here uh, that he realizes Saul really is out to kill him. 
And, and they're going to work out a plan here in just a second to figure out why, <laughs> to try to figure out how bad this really is. But needless to say, David is pretty oblivious to this, and yet God is giving him all of this on the front end as a testimony to him. Now, David goes and escapes to Ramah where he finds uh, Samuel the prophet and he stays with him for a hot second. And then David and Jonathan come together and they work out a plan. And the plan is very simple. David says, oh God, I'm not, I know I'm supposed to be back at the, at the king's house. David is invited back to have dinner with Saul. And he's like, no offense, but I'm not going to go. All right? Because uh, I don't know what he's going to do. And so why don't you just tell your dad that I've gone back to Bethlehem. We have a uh, annual sacrifice thing that we do there. I'm just going to go back with my family, tell them it was my brother's command. I had to be back there. And then here's what we'll do. If Saul is angry about it, then let me know. And I'll know he really does have it out for me. He really is going to kill me and I'll take off running. But if he just kind of handles it and he's just sort of okay with it, then let me know and I'll know things are cool. All right. And so they're like, well, Jonathan's like, well, how, how are we, we going to figure all this out? How, are we gonna, how am I going to let you know that this is the case? And David goes, okay, here's what we'll do. Or Jonathan says, here's what we'll do. Uh, I'll come out into the field. You hide behind these pile of rocks. It's a great plan. You hide behind the pile of rocks. I'm going to shoot arrows at the rocks. And I'm going to tell my servant to go find the arrows. And when the servant goes out there to find the arrows, I'm going to yell to him. And if I tell him the arrows are beyond where he's standing, you'll know Saul is coming after you and you can tear off running. If I tell him, no, the arrows are in front of you, come back, then you'll know that Saul's good and you can come back. Genius plan, right? Just send a text. It's very easy. Um, so all of this takes place. Uh, day, uh, uh, Saul at first, the first day, doesn't really realize anything. He sees David's seats empty and he doesn't think anything of it. Second day, he sees David's seats empty and he asks Jonathan, what's going on? And Jonathan says, well, David went back to, uh, to his, his hometown and he, uh, he had sacrifice that he had to do there. And he's obviously his eyes are shifting around because <laughs> Saul picks up on that he's lying and insults his, his mom and does a lot of different things. And it's literally right there in the text, just insults Jonathan at right, at, right, right there and says, uh, you need to tell me what's going on. And he tries to kill his son, Jonathan, naturally. And so uh, I, get, I bet you'll never guess his weapon of choice was his spear, of course. So <clears throat> Jonathan realizes he's upset. Jonathan also gets upset, takes off, is really mad. I'm telling you this should be made into a movie. Runs out there, shoots the arrows in the field, tells his servant, uh, the arrows are beyond you. David then knows, Jonathan then also knows that there is absolutely no future employment <laughs> for David in the kingdom of Saul and that David is going to have to take off running. And there's this really kind of awesome moment there at the end of this uh, story where David and Jonathan embrace each other, realizing this may be the last time that we see each other. And uh, really sort of a thank you that David gives to him. And the text even says, David cried more. <laughs> so both of them were weeping. David wept more over it, uh, but was torn up about the fact that he's having to leave and doesn't really know or understand why, doesn't really understand that this is the Lord's plan for him. You can read the Psalms and you can see 
what David went through on the run. You can see David describing to you what it's like to hide in a cave. And for what reason? You don't know why. The Lord has anointed you and then brought me for seemingly no good reason into the king's court so that the king could try to kill me. And then, in spite of my loyalty to the king, he still wants me dead. You can see what David's going through. There's a psalm I read, and I want to say it's Psalm 3. It's one of the early ones. Where David mentions sleeping. And he says, all of my enemies are around me, and they're all gathered around me, and and yet... The Lord gives me sleep. Now, imagine how difficult it is to sleep when you're being chased. Just think about that for a second. Running from cave to cave, running all over the land. Saul's spies are everywhere. They're reporting back to Saul where David is moving. And the Lord gives him rest. How thankful would you be for just eight hours of sleep when that could mean your life. What an incredible testimony of God's provision for him in the midst of all of that. But the hard thing to do in the midst of the trial is to see that the Lord is providing for you. That's the hardest thing. Beforehand, when everything's good, easy. The Lord's providing for me. Afterward, when everything is good again and all the seas are calmed down, the Lord is providing for me. In the midst of the trial, that's when it's the hardest. There's a quote by Dale Davis, and and I think it sums it up really well. He says, Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. It's in the midst of the trial that we have to think back to the many ways God has provided for us in the past. And as we all know, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what He will do in the future. Though He's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. The road may be really long, may be difficult and hard, and the journey may be very just really, to be honest with you, terrible. But the trust is, I think by the time I get to the end of this, it's going to be sweet again because I know the God that I serve and I know what he's done in the past and I'm taking it on faith that that's what he's going to do in the future. Questions? Comments? Go ahead, James.
Yeah. And you know, it's it's in the middle of of trials like that that there's there's these little assurances. I'm sure you felt every once in a while that just the Lord just reassuring you that He still He knows exactly where you are. He hasn't lost track of you. I was reading a story one time of a of a pastor in I want to say the 1800s in Scotland, and uh, there was a famine going on, and a lot of his people in his church were migrating to America and and leaving. And he was considering, he was heartbroken about it because he was losing so many families. And he, he was considering migrating himself. And, you know, obviously famine, not many people eating, a lot of people were starving. And he said, the story, as the story goes, he was sitting beside a, a river. And he is uh, just praying to the Lord, asking him, do you, do you want me, is this, is this what you want me to do? You want me to move? And about that time, this massive fish just flopped up on the shore right next to his feet. <laughs> it was just, you know, not saying we should go around looking, at, looking for signs all the time, but uh, there's sometimes those reassurances that, uh, no, I've got you right where I want you. You just need to trust, and, um, and things are going to be okay. But, you know, the, you have to say with all of that, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel simply because we're faithful that God is, is faithful too. Um, it's, it's often when we're faithless that he proves his faithfulness to us. Um, that there's so many times that I've gone through things that I just in the midst of it, you're thinking, this is terrible. And yet there'll be these assurances along the way that in spite of your faithlessness, I'm still faithful and still good. And sometimes that's re- really difficult to see, I think, in the midst of, in the midst of trial. Go ahead, Ryan. <clears throat> I can't probably all twenty years ago. But to uh, put things in your home that remind you yeah. that God's working. Yeah. He's God. Yeah. technological age, uh, I get a reminder at this time every year of Natalie in the hospital in Birmingham. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things, it's like, that's really hard to look at and just, you know, really difficult, but it's a reminder of those, of those photos that you took, you know, that this is a reminder that he's still faithful. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't turn out great, to be honest with you. I mean, sometimes cancer ends in death. Sometimes babies' trips to the hospital don't result in bringing the baby home, you know, and those are extended trials that are really, really tough and uh, just, just challenging, but there's still reminders on the other side that even when tragedy is, is at, its, at its peak, uh, God is still, is still faithful, and he's still good, and he still reassures us of that if we're watching. Other comments, questions? Go ahead, James. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> 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 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Any other comments or thoughts? All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, are thankful for the reminders that you give to us, that you're faithful to us, that you're good, that we can trust you. And we know that, that um, the trust that you require, the faith that you require from us, you also supply. You give to us. In spite of our fleshly faithlessness, you supply the faith that we need in the time that we need it. And we are grateful for that. Because without it, we would run to the hills. The very fact that we wake up in the morning and we are still Christians is evidence of your faithfulness to us, of your keeping us, securing us, your blessing to us. May we be reminded of that ever and always. And for those of us in this room that are in the midst of particularly fiery trials, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the many ways you are providing for them even now. Pray that you would give them subtle reassurances of your faithfulness to them. Pray that you would move all of us toward obedience and faithfulness to your word. That we would see your faithfulness to us and be inspired to respond in kind and by the power of your spirit may be able to do so. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.